Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is Maximilian Alvarez. I uh, have to give a shout out to my friends at Mandatory OT for linking us up. But uh, Max, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. And yeah, shout out to to the Mandatory OT comrades. And so Max, uh, you actually, so you host your own podcast, uh, Working People, is that right? That is right. Um, but you've also got, you are a published uh, writer, journalist. What What's that about? Exactly? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm all over the place. Um, so yeah, I was a, a columnist at The Baffler for a few years. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had articles published in, um, you know, Current Affairs, Truth Out, In These Times, Boston Review, um, kind of places like that. Um, I write write about a lot of different things, but I suppose uh, if you if you kind of run through the the set list, uh, the main the main points are kind of like neoliberalism and higher education and campus politics, and then kind of a, a mishmash of like kind of uh, political writings that that try to merge kind of my. Uh, academic interest in comparative literature and history with like my kind of political activism and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the podcast is, um, is called Working People. And, um, I mean, it's pretty much what it sounds like. You know, it's, it's, um, kind of a throwback to the days of, of Studs Terkel and, and, uh, folks like him where I, you know, I interview workers from around the country and, you know, we just kind of, have in-depth chats about them, their lives, their their jobs and dreams and struggles, and I mean the 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 kind of political uh, aim of the show is really kind of baked into the format of the show, right? Because uh, as we know, the voices and struggles and perspectives and creativity and and knowledge of uh, of the working class is so often. Um, kind of kept out of mainstream media um when it is kind of let in it's really just kind of cherry picked from pundits who just want a good soundbite and so the the podcast is really yeah just a a chance for for folks to really kind of you know connect with their fellow workers to hear their stories to uh listen to the stuff that they're doing at their workplace to to feel less alone right you know to kind of connect um, working class people through storytelling and to kind of build solidarity through that. And, you know, we also have a lot of um, kind of bonus content, a lot of uh, special episodes and mini casts where I get to bring on like writers and organizers and other podcasters. So, yeah, it's really it's really one big party, uh, one big working class party. Nice. How long have you been uh, doing the podcast? Um, just, just over a year, I uh, got one of the notifications that, um, you know, it's now, it's now officially been a, a year since I released the first episode. Um, but you know, we just wrapped up our, uh, second season, um, at the beginning of the summer and, uh, I'm currently kind of planning out the, the next season, um, but, uh, yeah, I think all, all in all, um, you know, bonus episodes included. You know, something around like eighty-five episodes. Damn, that's a that's a lot of content. Because I'm at like I've been going for about two years, and I'm at like this will probably be episode I think ninety-five, maybe. 
So you've been churning them out. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I mean, that's still that's still a lot, man. <laughs> so like, right. but yeah, I, I guess um, it's funny. I had a I had an editor friend kind of tell me that you know, like I'm um, I'm one of his most like manic seeming uh, contributors because. You can kind of tell it when you look back at like my writing and then my podcasting, right? It's like once I kind of dive into something, I just like pump out a shit ton of it. And so like when I started my Baffler column, I was writing like, you know, 5,000 word uh, articles every other week. Uh, Damn. Just for, yeah. And, and then I kind of like, you know burned out there and then i kind of shifted to podcasting and then i pump out like yeah, 85 episodes in a year <laughs> and so now i'm trying to kind of dial it back a bit <laughs> yeah i just typically i mean you know i try to put out one episode a week if i can sometimes that just doesn't you know things fall through oftentimes so that is uh, for listeners who don't know we were supposed to record this last week <laughs> but uh, i got i got sick <laughs> no worries no worries <laughs> i i think i had actually someone else like i was going to record two last weekend and they both kind of fell through so i didn't end up putting out an episode last week but then i'm like i've recorded one wednesday and then i'm got you on today and then i'm recording another one tomorrow so i'll have a good little back backfill yeah. there yeah, that's plenty. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of good content out there. People people will live. I know sometimes I have people whining. They're like, where's the episode this week? I'm like, man, like, you know, go, <laughs> go, go listen to something else. Like, I'll be back next week. Like, calm down. Um, you did mention a little bit about your kind of educational background. Maybe dig into that a little bit for me. I'll go first and just kind of so you kind of have an idea of where I'm coming from to so I have an undergrad in English and sociology, both, and then a master's in mass communication. And so I primarily dis or was exposed to postmodernism a little bit in like my intro to philosophy class, but then a lot through um, various courses in English in my undergrad. And it's been something that's kind of fascinated me ever since. So that's kind of where where I'm coming from, and that was really kind of sort of my pathway leftward, was for more of a kind of philosophical angle than I think most people are coming at it from a kind of a different perspective. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm probably in the latter category, because, um, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've told the story on um, kind of other, other shows, but um, like I, had, I had somewhat of a weird path to where I am now, but... You know, I was an undergrad at the University of Chicago, and I was originally a, a pre-med and a biology major. And, like, I had, I had always wanted to be an MD. And, you know, two years in, uh, you know, when I was deep in the throes of organic chemistry, I was like, man, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you know, there, there's again, there's a longer story to it. But basically, like, through um, fortuitous circumstances, like, I had picked up a a the biggest book on my shelf um just cuz i wanted to like feel like a college student and that book ended up being the brothers karamazov by by dostoevsky okay all right and yeah then like when i when i came to uh u chicago that quarter um in my second year um i came to find out that there was a whole class being taught on just that one book in the slavic department and so I had an elective and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try it out. And, you know, the professor was just this like amazing throwback to like the old school days. He was like an old church Slavonic scholar. He was like five foot one. He kind of had like, a, you know, 
crooking his neck. Like, I mean, he was he was just such a, a you know a weird and funny and brilliant guy. His name was uh, Norman Ingham, and he kind of took me under his wing, and and you know he he told me that I would be you know kind of out of my depth a bit, you know, talking about this this massive work of literature with a bunch of like literature scholars and grad students and stuff. But I ended up just loving it. And so, you know, all of this was happening concurrently with like my my growing malaise with uh with organic chemistry. And so by the end of the year, you know, I was sitting in um, you know, like a, a study session for a chemistry final and all I could think about was like the Russian novels that I wanted to read. <laughs> nice. Um yeah, I had Gogol sitting on my desk at home and I was like, that's all I can think about. And so I walked out of the study session. I called my my parents and I was like, Hey, would you guys freak out if I switched <laughs> from biology to Russian literature? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and, and to their credit, they handle it pretty well. But, but like from there, yeah, I kind of really, you know, uh, w- took a dive into um, kind of becoming a, a like a literature person. But, but even then, I don't think I was I was very kind of immersed in theory until grad school, and and in between. You know that time, those times. Um, you know there was there was a lot of time spent outside of the university, and anyone who listens to working people, you know, knows that story where you know I like my family lost everything in the recession. Um, you know, I moved back home and you know could only find work at like these um, blue collar temp agencies. So I was working in like factories and warehouses in Southern California for a while. Then I was like a waiter in Chicago. And then, you know, I've, I eventually found my way back to grad school uh, at the University of Michigan. So I, you know, started a PhD program in comparative literature. Um, and, you know, it was really, yeah, it was really for those first two years. Because um, at the end of the second year, I actually ended up applying for a second PhD in history. And so I'm, I'm kind of a, a, a dual PhD at the moment, um, trying to finish up that goddamn, you know, big ass dissertation but <laughs> you know i think um that theory was um was really something that helped me i think process uh the experiences that i and my family had kind of gone through like you know it started it started to give me a bit more of a language to think about kind of just the raw feelings of you know being exploited on the warehouse floor just the kind of, you know, the the sinister inner workings of kind of not only the the bureaucracy and managerial style within the company, but also kind of how that connected to the larger kind of political economy. And, you know, so I would say that that this long period was kind of my period of radicalization, but it really kind of came in steps, right? And and I think that that thinking about theory, especially in the first year and a half of my, you know, PhD in comparative literature, you know, really really helped me kind of um, put a lot of the pieces together. And and I think postmodernism, yeah, and poststructuralism, you know, was was really kind of integral to that. Nice, yeah. I've I'm just fascinated by it. I. I always have been, and I kind of, so, you know, I graduated high school in like 2001, and then, you know, was a freshman in college whenever 9-11 occurred, and then, you know, the subsequent kind of invasion of Iraq, and that whole kind of madness, 
And that really kind of, I've said this before, like it really kind of fucked me up. Like I, um, and so I think like similar to you, I think post-structuralism and post-modernism gave me a vehicle to kind of like understand a little bit better what the fuck was going on. Um, and how like, I guess ideology and power were kind of functioning in this sort of like funhouse mirror way. And that, you know, there was that, you know, kind of unquestioned, at least in the mainstream, you know, run up to the, to the war and so forth that I kind of ardently opposed, um, you know, rightfully so, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, I think, I think that's really, um, significant too, right? I mean, cause this is, this is kind of like what, uh, you know, I tell my my students all the time, and what I I constantly remind myself about, right, is like, um, you know, I think I think like theory theory doesn't mean anything to me if I can't, um, you know, use myself um as sort of like a diagnostic, you know, right, okay, point, right, and so what I what what that basically means is like I tell my students to like, it's like you know, trust your gut, right, if you are <clears throat> feeling depressed right or if you are feeling anxious um you know like that that's that's your that's your body that's your position in society that's your um kind of accrued um experience and 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 all that stuff like that's that's telling you something right there there is some sort of diagnostic um value in the ways that like living in this you know fucking hell world society you know makes us feel and just like you, you know, um, I think, you know, the, I, I, I don't think that I really kind of developed a, a sophisticated political consciousness, you know, enough to, to really kind of um, think critically about 9-11 and the war until a few years after the fact. Um, but, you know, like like you with the war, right, it was like, you know, I would I would uh, come home from working at the warehouse. You know, I've noticed just how depressed my family was, how depressed I was, how meaningless everything felt, how how lied to I felt. You know, in terms of like all the 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 quote unquote meta narratives that we were taught growing up about hard work and and achieving, you know, your your dreams of you know upward mobility and all that shit, right? Yeah. And so so it was like it it had to be from there that I really was able to kind of process what, you know, I was reading, you know, in, in these, these postmodern theorists. And that's what I try to kind of communicate to my students is like, you know, okay, like you feel, you feel like, you know, like this society has no kind of like, um, like big, uh, you know, truths or, or, you know, self-validating meanings for you to kind of, uh, live by and to feel kind of fulfilled by let's talk about that like why is it why is it that like i'm not finding that when i go to the mall right or i'm not finding that when i watch tv and so so that i think that that kind of um the the pain of living in kind of this society is the most like vital diagnostic we have for understanding what all this shit you know in postmodern theory is actually about because if you don't have that it's just going to be a bunch of gobbledygook i think yeah no absolutely um so in terms of kind of where what sort of i guess in terms of p- political economy like kind of where do you would you say what are the kind of tendencies or thinkers or maybe people that you kind of uh identify with the most or kind of strongly like feel a, a unity with hmm um well i mean 
I guess I guess it kind of comes in in waves, honestly, man. I mean, because um, you know, I, I I tend to I tend to not be able to kind of um, move past writers uh, or theorists. Um, like like I do feel like 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 all of us do. I think you know we we evolve, we we move you know from one kind of uh, theoretical tradition to the other. Right, and and in that way, we kind of mirror the the kind of theoretical development of you know certain fields um, throughout history, right? Like if you if you start in grad school reading about you know formalism, then then new criticism, structuralism, post structuralism, right? Every one of them is going to feel convincing at the time that you're reading. <laughs> yeah, very right, true. and right, and then when you you kind of start to read what came after, and you you see these other thinkers kind of pointing out the flaws in the previous kinds of um, schools of thought, then you start to kind of, you know, uh, you know, pick those up yourself. Right. And, and, you know, I say that because, uh, you know, like in, in that regard, <clears throat> yeah, there, there were like, I can look through my, my grad school kind of career and see papers. And I was like, Oh, I know what theorists I was reading at that moment. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, like I have like a, a Hemingway and Jacobson, uh, paper that like I would never write now, but at the time I was just so excited to be, uh, what I felt you know, was, was, I thought I was getting, you know, like what, what Roman Jacobson was really kind of saying. And I thought, you know, someone like Hemingway was really helping me understand it. And I thought, I think that's valuable. Like, I don't like to say, like, I've moved on from that because I think it was still very valuable for me at the time. And, and there are still residues of that in me today, right? You know, like that, that I can't just say that I've moved on from. Um, I know this is a long winded way of answering the question, <laughs> but I guess hey, that's you know, what academics say, do, right? Right. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm kind of just like kind of tweaking the, the uh, context of the question before I actually give a goddamn answer. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, like people that I, uh, you know, kind of inevitably return to more than others. Right. Obviously, you know, I think a lot with Marx um, and I and I there are a lot of like kind of Marxist theorists today whose work I find very valuable. Like I love reading uh, like Jody Dean and, um, you know, kind of thinkers in her vein who kind of mix uh together like um kind of marxist ways of thinking and also um kind of ways of thinking about media and and media theory um as i would say my my you know academic work is very much steeped in in both of those kinds of traditions and so you know along with Jody Dean there are people like Bernard Stiegler uh John Durham Peters uh even like Petter Sloterdijk um you know so so it's it's a real mishmash um but you know i think i think everyone that i've read has at least given me like something um that has left an impression on me um, but I would say, yeah, right now I'm very much kind of in the, the camp of, uh, that point at the, the Venn diagram where Marxism and media theory really overlap. Okay. So I, in terms of politically or what have you, I don't even know if that's the right term for anarchism as, cause I kind of consider it to be the method. Um, but I sort of have this triangulation of kind of like an ANCOM, thought mixed with a little maybe some egoism mixed with some of this kind of post-structuralism or even post-left tendencies and kind of like a some like a little bit of a salad mix of those probably predominantly in the ANCOM camp but I'm still kind of feeling out like what exactly 
all this means. And I wish I had had time to read this book I just bought by Todd May. It's like anarchism. It's like a post-structuralist look at or talking about post-structuralist anarchism and kind of what that Mm. is. So I think that would have really rounded out this conversation well. But uh, at the risk of running too long and taking up too much of your Saturday, I'd like to go ahead and jump in to the article we're going to look at today, which is called The Catastrophe of Postmodernism by John Zerzan. Um, It's kind of interesting. Uh, I didn't know much about Zerzan before this. I had kind of like seen him mentioned from time to time on my Twitter timeline. But um, so a pretty interesting (laughs) thinker, nonetheless, and sort of uh, loosely or maybe one of the predominant kind of anaprim, green anarchists, uh, kind of thinkers in the world. So um, a bit, he was a uh, actually a confidant to Theodore Kaczynski or the Unabomber. <laughs> nice. Good start. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of find that interesting in terms of, especially in the way that he's kind of going in on a lot of the postmodern thinkers in this article um, with that kind of sympathy, you know what I mean? It's like kind of like, eh, you're kind of undermining your whole project if you're relating to like what what is this you know what i mean yeah <clears throat> but for me i kind of fall follow uh, frederick jameson's idea of postmodernity rather than like these being postmodern thinkers these are cr- these are critics of the of postmodernity which like jameson says is the cultural logic of late capitalism so i think that is I think to me I find the most accurate way to view these thinkers. Yeah, I, I think I think so too. And I guess um, um, I mean I, I I know that that folks you know who listen to your show, which I which I think is great and really smart and really helpful, uh, will will probably kind of know know what we're talking about there. But I guess you know like if um, if folks who listen to Working People are are kind of you know checking this convo out. Uh, you know, I, I guess what you know, what's the elevator kind of um, pitch for for using postmodernity uh, over postmodernism? So I think at least in the popular discourse, and even you know, I don't know if anybody would be familiar necessarily with with people like Jordan Peterson who are kind of broadly attacking the quote unquote postmodern left, the postmodern neo Marxist. Yeah, um, and I think there's you know. Effectively, it's kind of like these these thinkers are prescribing a society that doesn't like where meaning is impossible and communication and progress and all of those sort of, um, you know, kind of pillars that we've sort of been taught, especially in a place like the United States, like we're working toward you know, humanity and civilization are working towards a better, freer, more peaceful society or civilization like these thinkers are attacking that foundation and espousing really more so prescribing like this um alienated impossibility of meaning and communicating and and reaching any sort of positive state is is impossible and that they're sort of advocating for that whereas i think the important distinction is to make is look these thinkers arose from a certain, you know, even if you want to go material circumstance, right, of post-World War II, um, you know, post-1956 Hungarian Revolution, post-1968 
student uprising in France and responding to sort of the material conditions of within culture. And so looking at like the failure or the, maybe not the total complete failure, but some of the failures of prior leftist movements like Marxism and different variations of that. Yeah. And like, um, and I think I thought it was really helpful when, you know, you, you brought up Jameson, right. You know, it was talking about, uh, yeah, post postmodernity, right. As kind of being the, the lived conditions of, of the logic of late capitalism made manifest, um, in, in just the culture that we're a part of the, the ways of living that we, you know, participate in, right. You know, that those are kind of, you know, shaped around you know yeah the cultural logic of late capitalism um as opposed to kind of thinking of postmodernism right like like you know shysters like um jordan peterson i think one of the the biggest uh grifts that they're pulling is they're trying to convince people that postmodernism is a singular thing right right that it's that it's an ism right and you know shit you you spend like two seconds reading any postmodern theorist then they're going to be like oh you know Postmodernism is a million different things, right? And and I think yeah, in that regard, Jameson is really helpful because it's like you can start to think of what of what we want to call postmodernism, right? What we want to call all these different efforts to um, kind of wrangle together what we put under the umbrella of postmodernism, right? What they are is they're 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 kind of um, you know vocalized responses to living and thinking under that cultural logic of late capitalism right you know like that that you know postmodernism isn't necessarily a unifying kind of way of looking at the world or way of understanding um you know philosophy or culture or politics or anything like that but yeah it makes it makes i think it's way more helpful to kind of think about um, thinking in in postmodernity, right, is kind of a response to living under the conditions of late capitalism. Absolutely, and I think one big point that I mean, even myself until lately, I hadn't really kind of con- conceptualized it or really thought about it. But I think with the invention of the atomic bomb, I mean, that was like that's that was the output of all this of modernity right of all this kind of logical like science and reason and rationality is the creation of a device that could destroy our ability to to live on the planet and potentially even the entire planet and now like you know people of our generation right it's been so long like this is we're so immersed in it i don't think we really stop to think about it because we're so deep in that habituated sense of of it existing right we just kind of take it for granted that there are weapons out there that could destroy us all. But I think when you, you know, maybe you're born and that development kind of happens at some point, like during your lifetime, I think that's a different perspective. And I think that that's one point that probably influenced a lot of these thinkers. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I, and, you know, um, uh, hopefully, hopefully, you know, listeners don't, don't think that we've gotten off track because really we are, we're already kind of wading into the, you know, what Zerzan writes at the beginning of this, of this article, right? Like he's trying to kind of, uh, set the table and explain like, you know, you know, what postmodernism or postmodernity looks like, uh, you know, and, and kind of what conditions, historical conditions like it grew out of, right? And, uh, and the one that, yeah, <clears throat> really caught my eye as you, as you pointed out, right, is like, you know, again, if, if listeners are trying to kind of think with us and trying to figure out what we mean when we say postmodernity, 
like a big part of it, right? Is this kind of uh, gradual or or even not so gradual, right? Kind of emergence into an age where we have, you know, we are so disillusioned with the promises of the Enlightenment, right? And and you mentioned the atom bomb, right? You know that that's kind of the perfect example because it's like. The atom bomb was also, you know, what we saw at the time is like the height of, you know, scientific thinking and, 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 and rationality, right? Like that, that all of the scientific methods that we had been practicing and harnessing and, and these are the very scientific methods that we learn in school, right? Brought us out of the age of, of kings and the age of, um, superstition, right? That it was this rational, these rational ways of thinking, and testing and developing and and that that moved um society forward technologically socially culturally politically right that 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 this is the kind of you know great force of quote unquote you know like western civilization you know if you're if you're Ben Shapiro or <laughs> Peterson or whatever right and then like you know yeah mid 20th century comes along and we see that like well well fuck you know like this this like kind of regime of of western rationality what did it give us? It gave us the Holocaust. It gave us the the atom bomb, right? It 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 wrought just like so much destruction on the planet. And I think more than that, it reminded us of how close we were to destroying ourselves entirely. And so when once you see that, right, once you kind of and even the Soviet Union, right? I mean, even the Soviet Union, you know, that was um kind of at least ostensibly, you know, and, and especially, you know, as interpreted through kind of like Marxism as a science, very crude Stalinist Marxism. I don't want to be I don't want to paint with a broad brush here, right? <laughs> but it was also very much connected to the language of rationality as like a rational way of organizing society. And capitalism does the same thing, right? It's, it claims it's the most rational way of organizing life and commerce, right? So whether you're talking about, you know, Stalin's gulags or, you know, yeah, the, the fucking uh, Holocaust in Germany or the atom bomb that America produced, you know, like – or you know even just the 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 massive levels of kind of poverty inequality racism and all that bullshit that that we have right here at home in the US of A um that that is kind of the product of what we're told you know is the most rational way of organizing society through capitalism right you have this kind of collective emergence uh, 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 into kind of recognizing that like well shit rationality isn't going to give us you know the world that that we need, right? You know, this is this is kind of like what rationality can be, and so I, th I feel like part of of understanding postmodernity is understanding just how how important. Remember that we were talking about like um, kind of the the feelings that you have as kind of being the the most powerful diagnostic. Like, imagine being uh, living in the mid century, um, mid twentieth century, and feeling you know, gradually and profoundly disillusioned with, um, you know, just this this kind of regime of post-enlightenment rationality that you're told is like the height of human achievement and seeing just how devastating that shit has been, right? You know, then you're fumbling around left uh, and you're, you're left wondering like, well, what else is there? And, I, and that's kind of a, the way that I 
can start to understand why you know postmodernity is a useful concept or or how it represents some sort of a break with what came before does that does that sound somewhat right yeah no absolutely and i think that it's a good segue into kind of in terms of from a philosophical standpoint what where the kind of the roots of postmodern or i guess postmodernity are in terms of thinking and strategies for thinking and that being the primacy of language itself and uh, I think prior to the post-structuralists, we had a more, there was a bigger emphasis on ideas themselves. And then the post-structuralism taking it down like another level more at a more base level and looking at language it, itself and looking at things like, you know, signifiers and signified and the whole, like, you know, the kind of Ferdinand de Saussure and that notion that court sort of kind of kicks things off, but even on you know even Wittgenstein is looking at language and talking about language games as well in the early kind of twentieth century. Yeah. So uh, so what so so what do you so what do you make of that? I don't want to. I guess I don't want to spend too much time um, on on structuralism, right? Yeah. But um, you know, I guess I guess when I was reading this, the notes that I was kind of making. Um, we're we're like we're kind of in the same vein of what I've been you know what I've been trying to kind of articulate here right is that you know I mean we're you know well as as you know a a kind of Marxist myself um, you know I can't get out of like thinking materially about kind of the uh, how and why certain regimes of thought kind of come into being at the times that they do right like what what experiences. And what kind of historical conditions like kind of set the table for uh, thinkers to be way more focused on kind of language and the primacy of language and yada, yada, yada. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that I thought, you know, was was um, that helped kind of like elucidate kind of this this transition from one epoch to another Um both in terms of like coming into structuralism and moving to post-structuralism, right? Is is I think I also wanted to just kind of like flag that, you know, the the conditions of living under modernism, right, or or, or modernity, right? That there a lot of that um, kind of stuff is already there, right? Because you think about um, kind of I think I mentioned Hemingway before. You think about you know even writers like. Kafka or um, Carson McCullers, right? I mean, there, there is a kind of sense of, of um, malaise and disillusionment and loneliness that, that I think, you know, helps me understand why language became such a big focus for a lot of people, right? Because I think, you know, moving into the age of modernity, right, you know, what comes with that is like, um, you know, the individual kind of running up against just the massive machinery of modern life and commerce, whether that be in the city, you know, where suddenly, you know, we have all these stories from the early 20th century of characters moving from the country to the city and just being swallowed up by this you know like massive kind of um yeah just 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 like machinery uh, that that just seems like bigger than any one person and that will chew you up and spit you out and so f- like feeling yourself as the individual kind of at the feet of that kind of grand um machinery and even thinking about kind of the process of globalization in the 20th century 
right? You know, like what that does is it kind of produces a feeling in you, which you can read in Kafka and every anyone else, right? Is that feeling of of smallness, that feeling of you know irrelevance, that feeling of wondering what the hell, you know, what do I mean in this grand universe? Like, what role do I play? And you know, I think that um, one of the really great lines in um, Zerzin is that he says that postmodernism is modernism without hope, right? <laughs> and so, like, you know, I think um, I, I think about you know that that experience under um, kind of modernity and a lot of like modernist writers that that we um, kind of read as still being confronted with the the kind of bigness and soullessness of that you know of the conditions of modern life but still trying to find some sort of meaning some sort of truth some sort of you know self affirming experience you know within that right something something that you know can can uh you know be a salve for the kind of feelings of alienation uh that we have living under modern life and i think that one of the main ways of understanding that alienation um is is through language right is that you know people start thinking more critically about how much other people really know them right because again if you think about you know the conditions of modern life you know for for the first time in our history we're having just these massive you know kind of compounds in cities where you know hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people are living kind of like in these stuffed little apartments next to each other people are shuffling you know on the subway past each other you see a face on the street and you know you'll never see them ever again as like Baudelaire and others write about right again it's just that feeling of small against the kind of tide of modern life and that you know prompts you to wonder you know like how much do do you matter how much can other people really know you how much room for human connection is there and so then i think you start to to turn towards um kind of asking yourself if like you know the the words that you're you know saying to other people the ways that you're trying to reach and communicate with other people if that you know if, if they really can understand you, right? You know, if they really can connect with you in that way. And so I know that, um, I hope it's not a deviation, but I just wanted to kind of, yeah, like footnote that, that I think also, you know, there, there, there are, you know, material and lived reasons for why people start asking more kind of, um, serious questions about language itself that are tied to kind of the, the kind of conditions of modern life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from a kind of historical perspective on philosophy itself, a lot of this strain of thought is kind of emanating. I think really Nietzsche is probably the biggest influence on all of this type of this sort of strain of thought and kind of an outgrowth uh, of his work. But I want to quote from the text too here. I thought this was a really great quote that kind of you know, we already kind of covered this, but I think this is pretty articulate and just getting the kind of nugget of of how language uh, plays into this whole thing is uh, we have depended on language as a supposedly sound and transparent handmaiden of reason. And where has it gotten us? Auschwitz, Hiroshima, mass psychic misery, impending destruction of the planet, to name a few. I really like that line, that um, mass psychic misery. Somehow yeah. that feels like the kind of the milieu that we're living in at the moment. But then moving... Oh, sorry, I didn't know if, you were, <laughs> if there was more to the quote. Oh, no, that, that was the end of the quote. Um, but... I'll just highlight, I think he, even he says here, um, talking about Nietzsche, Nietzsche and Heidegger had already kind of suggested that 
a different language or a changed relationship to language might somehow bring new and important insights. So that's kind of going to that sort of historical development of how language wound up being such a large, you know, taking a, such a large focus for us in the yeah. latter half of the 20th century. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, yeah, that, that, um, that mass psychic misery also really caught my attention too. And, and I guess to, um, to again, try to kind of concretize this a bit, um, you know, cause like I said, I'm, 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 I'm a, you know, very much like kind of a media theory, media history kind of, um, you know, person. And I think one of the, the, one of the really great books in kind of um, media studies that's been written recently is a book by Jeffrey Sconce called um, Haunted Media. And I think that, that, you know, when he talks about kind of the, the development and, and um, kind of mass production of radio, you know, as kind of, you know, being integral to this experience of, of alienation under modernity. I think that that may be an example that, that can, um, kind of help listeners kind of figure out what exactly we're talking about here, right? Because, you know, again, like, you know, think about this, like, historically, right? I mean, we're in a kind of period of of 200 years where shit is changing incredibly rapidly, right? And we're moving from um, kind of ways of living apart from each other in, in, in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, where it takes a long time for information and goods and, and change to, to, to move and happen, right? And then we get, you know, the railroad, we get the telegraph, we get electricity, right? Things are starting to, quote unquote, modernize very quickly. And what comes from that is that people are being kind of increasingly more connected. Things are moving more quickly. People's expectations of how quickly society moves are are going up and up and up. But also within that, like I was saying before, you get kind of the, the sense that, you know, you as an individual are just like kind of a, a, a speck in this kind of much bigger kind of machinery of modern life. And you start to get like way more uh, self-conscious about your own insignificance. right? And, um, you know, you start to you start to kind of see and experience just how vast the world is and how unoriginal your own thoughts are when you are now you now have access to way more the thoughts of way more people that echo yours. Right. And. Um, you know, the, the reason I bring up Jeffrey Sconce is that he talks about the experience of, of listening to radio, right? You know, like in the early 20th century, um, it's kind of being, uh, you know, just, just like both, um, really, it's like a really beautiful and really sad kind of experience where, you know, imagine you're, you're, you know, someone, you know, living in the, the kind of plain states, you know, radios were actually quite, you know, cheap to, to make. And you could kind of pick up signals from, from what felt like, you know, just vast distances beyond what your eyes could see. And you could start hearing voices in the ether, right? Coming through this little box. Um, in your in your garage, your barn, your living room, right? And so, like that, both makes you feel more connected to people, 
right? You know, you feel less alone that you could hear, you know, like in the middle of the night, you hear these voices, you know, you're not the only one awake, you know, you're not the only one, you know, in this kind of wasteland. But at the same time, the the very kind of medium of radio reminds you that the voice that you're hearing isn't the actual person, right? It's just a kind of, it's a disembodied kind of voice. So it both makes you feel more, it makes you feel less alone and more alone at the same time. Right. You know, like it's it's a false kind of presence, as as Derrida would would say. And so I think, um, you know, again, that's 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 one of the, the ways that I tried to kind of imagine what it what it felt like, you know, in this kind of time and place to to be both like kind of connected through the fruits of, of modernity and modern rationality. But also, you know, to to feel so kind of isolated and atomized and and actually disconnected from people um, through those very same, you know, technologies and so on and so forth. And I think that when you're, you know, that whole process of listening to radio across the plains and, and, you know, kind of feeling both more and less alone, that's how I kind of think about the experience of of, um, people being more – more critically analyzing language itself, right? It's being connected to that same experience of, of listening to the radio, right? It's like you you send these words out to people, even if it's just someone sitting across from you in your living room. You send these words out like the voices coming through, you know, radio waves, you know, across the plains. And, you know, you – but you start to wonder, like, if the meaning that you are kind of con- trying to convey with these words when you talk to other people, if that meaning is really getting through, right? If that meaning is really, you know, like being understood by other people, right? And and I think the more that you start to meditate on that, the more that um, you get the kinds of, um, you know, thinkers, you know, that, that we, you know – see in in um, Zerzan's piece, you know, who are wondering, you know, whether or not, you know, language is, you know, like the kind of um, mode of communication uh, that it was always kind of presented to be. Right. And I think there's an interesting idea there, too, with uh, in reading kind of Derrida about language not really representing things the way that you would kind of intuitively think, think that it does. Like, it doesn't represent things. It's Ah, I forget how he articulated, but it was a really good point. Um, damn it! But it was it, more so about like how it's not actually communicating something or referring to something. But I can't remember the the context of it. But it was really good. Um, but that kind of leads me to you know your whole c- comments about the radio. I think it's kind of interesting that. You know, obviously we're doing a podcast. Like, there's been a reinvigoration of that kind of of the audio audio as a medium, which is kind of counterintuitive when you're thinking maybe, you know, you would think video or something like that would be the, but podcasts have become so popular and it's almost like, and it kind of goes into this too, how there's sort of this cultural dead end in terms of where we're just sort of recycling old forms, old modern forms, and just like taking them apart and disassembling them and creating them in, or you know new forms of but plucked from the same old concepts and just kind of reconfiguring them right and and um you know i think that um that in a weird way um we are kind of replaying uh the drama of the 20th century um 
that that kind of uh, resulted in what we call post-modernity, right? It's like, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but maybe this is just because I've been teaching this kind of thing to students so long, and this is the, kind of the only way I can think about it now. But, like, you know... You know, imagine that, um, you know, you're, you're a student today, you know, like in a literature class, right? And, you know, you are reading this book that, uh, you know, is just making you have kind of these profound thoughts that you had never thought before. Right. And, and, you know, they, they, they really just kind of spark something in you. They make you something more than what you were, you know, before you had started reading it. Right. It really expands your mind. It really expands the kinds of questions that you ask about life and, and society and so on and so forth. Right. And so then your professor tells you to write a paper about it. And so you start doing more research and you realize that, you know, people have been making these same points for, you know, like centuries, right? You start to realize how fucking unoriginal, right, your thoughts about this book were. And that starts to make you feel um, kind of really, I don't know, like not depressed, but it's just kind of it's a big bummer, right? You know, when you start to realize like, oh, I thought I had something original there in reading this. And now when I Google this thing or when I look into the the search engine of the library I see that you know not only is this not uh original but it's in fact you know it's been around these thoughts have been around long enough to have been original at one point then critiqued to death to now kind of being almost laughable if you bring them up you know in scholarly circles right that that experience of of being told that you don't that what you think uh that what is profound to you as a student, is not original, is actually really deflating and really, I think, uh, existentially significant, right? Because I think that is, uh, again, kind of like extrapolate that to the level of, um, like, you know, society, like a, a broader historical level, that that feeling of unoriginality, that feeling of coming into contact with kind of just the, the vast archive of human thought and experience and, and history, right? The, the kind of what it means to you on a personal level is that you yourself are incredibly unoriginal. You yourself are incredibly un, you know, like insignificant, right? And that clashes with kind of all the, the mythologies that we are kind of raised with about, um, you know, under liberal kind of uh, democracy, quote unquote, where, you know, we, we do really prize kind of the the singularity of the individual right and so it's kind of like you were built up in the early years of your life to feel uh more unique and more significant than you actually are only to kind of be just completely dropped you know by the time that you start to really kind of learn uh you know about the world and about other people you know outside of your own kind of immediate sphere whether that be in college or whether that just be moving to another uh part of the country another part of the world and so again i'm trying to kind of convey that 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 personal existential feeling of postmodernity right is like you know because when you come up against that that feeling of unoriginality and insignificance uh in the face of kind of just the enormity of human experience and and history right then you start to wonder well what else is there right what can i possibly offer right you know like what um you know and also to to what we were talking about before if um if all these thoughts if any kind of original thought that i could possibly have has already been had uh, it would kind of also seem intuitive that you know human 
human civilization has produced all the good thoughts that it's going to produce and yet we still had the holocaust we still had you know the the atomic bomb right we still have kind of famine and war and and inequality and so you start to really kind of get a sense that that yeah there is no you know real progress outside of this right or that or at least that that thought itself is not going to lead us out of this wilderness right and i think something you kind of are you're kind of articulating in a different way is almost this, uh, and I think Zerzan even quotes from Foucault's idea of like the individual being a construction and, and like almost being at its end and it say, says it's been uh, in construction for something like 200 plus years and is nearing that end and kind of this whole idea of the death of the subject that is part of, of post-modernity. And I want to read to you just a little passage here directly from Zerzan. Capitalism is in, in fact has made a career of celebrating the individual while while destroying him or her, which I think that line right there is so fucking great. Um, and the works mm. of Mark and the works of Marx and Freud have done much to expose the largely misdirected and naive belief in the sovereign, rational Kantian self in charge of reality, with their more recent structuralist interpreters Althusser and Lacan contributing to and updating that effort. But this time the pressure is so extreme that the term individual has been rendered obsolete and replaced by subject, which always includes the aspect of being subjected, as in the older, a subject of the king, for example. Which I think just sort of articulates that same, kind of what you were sort of circling around in this this sort of meta-narrative element that, you know, I am a unique individual or subject, but really like so much of our, you know, we are created through this interconnected system of language like we're part of this symbolic order if you're kind of deriving that from kind of Lacan's work right yeah I mean like and and um you know that that's that's I think you know where you really kind of start to go down the rabbit hole right I think I think the individual the note the notion of individuality is is always the the best way for me to to wrap my head around this stuff um and and the same goes for for my students right is um you know the the this this notion that that who we are um is is kind of like inscribed on us from birth right it's some sort of like uh code hardwired into us that that makes us unique um and you know that that really starts to clash um with uh with with everything that we're talking about here once you start to kind of once you start to kind of think about the fact that well who you are is really kind of um you know a, a, an an agglomeration you know like an accumulation of experiences and stuff that you have downloaded from society and other people right so like that's what we spend the first like third of our lives doing we spend it in school right we spend it learning and kind of downloading kind of the information that we're going to need to um kind of operate in society right and so you start to kind of think to yourself it's like well maybe then who i am now is is not kind of like this thing that you know has is not this kind of self that you know existed when I was born, but is really kind of just like a, a collection, a hodgepodge collection of stuff that I've picked up 
right? You know, that, that, you know, like that we're more like, we're more like kind of gum on the street that just kind of picks up dirt and stuff like that. And that that is really, you know, kind of the collection of all that is what we call, you know, ourselves. That's what I call I, me, Max today, right? It's not, it's not, you know, kind of any sort of unique snowflake uh, existence. I'm just kind of like a reflection of um, kind of all these different thoughts that other people have had and that I've absorbed into my own kind of consciousness and unconsciousness. Um, and, and that, you know, within kind of the contours of my own brain and body, right, they kind of, you know, create, you know, certain thoughts in me. But all those thoughts, again, are still kinds of just like uh, bits and pieces that I've absorbed from, you know, the world outside of, of my body and my brain, right? And I, and I say that because I think that this is... Um, this this models kind of the problem of language, right? Where we start to like think really hard about, like, imagine you're just like the smartest fucking person. Imagine you're just like a really, really smart, um, you know, student who you know like has been reading a shit ton, and you feel like you were having kind of really big breakthroughs about, I don't know, philosophy or culture or literature or whatever. And so you start writing these down. You start really kind of trying to push the envelope of human knowledge. Um, in a direction that it hasn't gone before. And then you start to kind of think more critically about how you, you're, in order to describe kind of these thoughts that you're having, you are using language that you yourself didn't create, right? You are using kind of language and colloquialisms and terms that, once again, you have kind of downloaded from kind of society and from human history, and that all those terms kind of come with like a lot of baggage uh, and meaning that you, again, yourself didn't create. And so you're starting to wonder like how how much of what I'm writing is actually me writing it and how much of it is actually kind of, you know, just the the – you know what what is original about this right if i'm using language that i myself didn't create and if i am kind of um piecing together thoughts and and terms and stuff that i've kind of read and and seen you know like in the tv and books and stuff like that like where do i actually come in right because it seems like i'm really just a vehicle for all this like stuff especially language um that that exists outside of me Damn, I think you hit on so many topics there, or like thinkers in just one <laughs> one place. So, oh man, the, the one of the first thoughts I have is kind of what you're getting at is is like this narrative of the self or the subject. And I'm, this is something that I've even been giving more thought to or investigating in my own self is like who, like who am I? Am I a am I a stable subject? Like who is me? Is it me? at five years old? Is it me at 10? Is it me at 35? Like, are those, what are, what is that? Like, what am I? Is there any consistency to who I am? Is there any stability in myself or subjectivity and things like that? And like trying to understand my own behavior, do I even understand what is really driving me? I, you know, I like to sort of think of myself as being fairly rationable and and reasonable but then i look at my behavior sometimes and i wonder like you know how how much real truth t to that is and how much of that is kind of kind of bullshit that <laughs> that i'm attaching myself to right 
Yeah, no, and it comes through, right? You know, like um, you're you're reminded of this. I think this is kind of the problem of all philosophy, right? Is that is is kind of the question of um, free will and the question of of the self, right? You know, it's like because consciousness, right, as we understand it, like it gives. I mean, because. That's the thing, and I think that's why people inevitably get tired uh, to bring it back to the reading. That's why people inevitably aren't fully convinced by um, you know postmodernism because uh, you ultimately can't get rid of the notion of um, of the self of the individual, right? Because no matter how much you can rationally understand that that who you are is really yeah just like a kind of assemblage of stuff that you've picked up from society and and the ways that that history has shaped you know that stuff before you were ever even born right you know like and that stuff kind of comes through right in our cultural ticks in our in our habitus right like when when you kind of do stuff unthinkingly uh and if you like you know i don't know like whether it's like uh, you know, you pass like a, a, a homeless person on the street and you react a certain way, even if kind of consciously you are kind of more politically woke, right? You know, you still are kind of operating on the knee jerk um, habits that society has kind of written into you, a society that undervalues or doesn't value at all the lives of, you know, poor people and, and you know, the indigent, right? And so you start to be, get reminded of how much you yourself and the the ways that you act in the world are kind of um yeah reflections of of what soci- of the imprint society has left on you right and and that kind of starts to make you feel like well well maybe i'm not as in control as i thought i was right and then you start going yeah down that rabbit hole that that you were just talking about is like well well even the the complex thoughts that i have right i could kind of trace them back to stuff that i've read to experiences that i've had and all of it kind of seems to clash with this idea that like that there's some sort of kind of generative core of originality that's like implanted in my brain and that that's where that's where myself my selfness kind of comes from right and, and and so you know that's i think where we do get you know like a lot of the postmodernist um kind of thinking whether it be bart whether it be you know derrida foucault right i think they were they were all in their own ways really trying to think through um, kind of how that shit works and and you you kind of yeah I think on the page you inevitably end up at this point of thinking that that the self is a fiction right that there is no kind of self that there is only kind of you know a human physical vessel like our body and brains and flesh like that we are really kind of just this this um kind of vessel for uh yeah like other other shit that that kind of it's like a bathtub that you know has a faucet kind of with water coming out and a drain that's open with water going you know out the bottom right it's like we are the bathtub and like we're kind of at any given point we're filled with some shit and we're losing (laughs) other shit and and you know, like that, that that's kind of just that's our that's our place, you know, as as things that absorb and reflect kind of the, the historical kind of conditions and, and, and forces that that we live within. Um, but I think, you know, 
again, you, and, and this, this isn't just postmodernist, right? I mean, this is like, I think Thomas Mann wrote about the well of history, you know, like as, as kind of being, uh, this, that's very much in the same ballpark, right? Is that, you know, that who we are is really just kind of like, yeah, the, the, the kind of stuff of history speaking through us. Um, and, and, not to go on on too long of a of a detour here, but I think the the point that I want to make is that you know that that all makes sense and it's all a mind fuck, and then you know but you end up at this kind of point if you're reading kind of too far into postmodernist um, thought of thinking like okay well then there is no self I'm just kind of a reflection of you know the world around me a kind of hodgepodge of of different kind of cultural signifiers and historical um kind of influences and yada 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 but I think again like to go to bring it all the way back to what we started talking about when I said that like you know your feelings are the best diagnostic you have for understanding theory Right. Is like you still can't shake the notion that like, well, I still am something. Right. I still I still do. I still know that I'm like a, a complex thinking thing that is in some way unique. Right. That I still have some sort of selfness, you know, and some sort of agency, even if it's not total agency. Right. It isn't. I don't think it's one or the other, I guess, to, to be like <laughs> Derrida, like there is no there is no kind of strict binarism between kind of uh, us being purely determined by society and by history and us being kind of, you know, this this like masculinist, like individual, like William Blake type shit, like where we are kind of in control of our fate and the world and yada, yada, yada. And right? it's always somewhere in between. But I think anyone reading it will you know, we'll know that like deep down there is still something about me that's, that's, um, that's, that's individualized, right. That is unique, right. That is, you know, like, um, that does like speak to this concept that we've called the self before. And I think that that is kind of the, the, the point that at which like post-modernist, post-modernist thinking, uh, kind of, Runs out of steam. Like after that, you know, then then it I feels like we're more kind of just talking about con. We're just in the realm of of concepts, and we're not really kind of paying attention to the reality that uh, that we live through. Yeah, a- absolutely. I did want to. I mean, your analysis or your analogy with the uh, bathtub, I think, was great. And uh, I just wanted to reference this Al to say quote about history being a process without a subject, kind of tied into uh, the thinker that you mentioned. I don't remember the name but I also want to mention too on that same note and kind of what you're going at too is you know what what does liberation mean without the possibility of the individual or the subject and I want to read um, Zerzin's quote here from the text so postmodernity or modernism reveals that autonomy has largely been a myth and cherished ideals of mastery and will are similarly misguided but we have if we are promised herewith a new and serious attempt at demystifying authority concealed behind the guises of a bourgeois humanist freedom, we actually get a dispersal of the subject so radical as to render it impotent, even non-existent, as any kind of agent at all. Who or what is left to achieve a liberation, or is that just one more pipe dream? The postmodern stance wants it both ways, to put the thinking person under erasure while the very existence of his own critique depends on discredited ideas like subjectivity. Which I think is a pretty apt criticism and kind of a pretty much reinforcing kind of what you were getting at there towards the end. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, um, you know, you 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 mentioned um, you kind of brought in the stakes of this earlier in the conversation, right? Um, because like this this is kind of the bone that people like Jordan Peterson are latching onto. Right. Like I, I really do not think and well, in fact, I know that Jordan Peterson and his disciples like are not thinking about kind of postmodernist thinking, you know, in this kind of depth. Right. I mean, they 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 they're not asking these kinds of questions. They are really kind of boiling these questions down to um, kind of straw men that they can you know like uh, knock down but i think that there is at least a kernel of a valid criticism coming from people like jordan peterson and it's 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 exactly kind of contained in that quote that you read right is that like you know like people you know don't want to be told that they are you know that there is nothing kind of worthwhile or unique or or uh kind of worth salvaging about themselves or about kind of the truths that they have been kind of told to live by, right? I mean, people will still inevitably want something to fight for, something to live for, right? And and people like Jordan Peterson are kind of taking this notion of postmodern relativism and running with it, right? And 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 saying that you know thinking in this way, right? You know, which which has brought a lot of good, right? It has, you know, the the I mean, we haven't even there's so much here and we may have to kind of do a, a follow up, <laughs> right. you know, to this conversation. Yeah, sure. Right. Because like, yeah, we haven't even gotten to the point uh to the to the you know, like kind of question of like, you know, as Leotard discusses like the kind of destruction of meta narratives, right? Because meta narratives being like kind of the 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 nation, right? Or Western um kind of culture, right? That these kinds of big uh forces that that you know we grow up kind of thinking define you know like who we are and and what we live for and what the progress of history is kind of directed towards right you know like postmodernity is also kind of a name for uh, a time period in which like the 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 hold the the allure of those sorts of meta narratives is really kind of losing uh its its power right you know it is losing you know these meta narratives whether they be contained within the church um or you know the government um you know these meta narratives are kind of losing their purchase the more that we are coming into contact with the realities of all the people that you know they're leaving out of all the destruction that they are causing. And I mean, to, to kind of tie it back to what we were saying before, right? Like you, you, you're living through the 20th century in America. America is becoming kind of like just this, this massive um, kind of world power, um, you know, especially, you know, like as it emerges from world war one and world war two, it is this kind of military and economic powerhouse right and you were kind of you know a citizen within that and you were kind of believing this kind of national ideology that we are uh as americans kind of taking our rightful place as a world power because our democracy is the best because our values are the best because our you know political economy is the most efficient and and benefits the most uh people in in society right then, you know, like, again, as as we were saying, you start to emerge into the second half of the 20th century where, you know, 
more and more uh, revelations are coming out and more and more voices are kind of being heard that speak to kind of the real like, you know, inhumanity of this system, right? The real underbelly of American exceptionalism, of, of you know, late capitalism, right? We start to see that, in fact, oh, it's not the meta narrative of the goodness and righteousness of, of what we are and what modernity is, Right was 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 leaving out a lot of important shit. Right, it was leaving out kind of just the 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 on mass kind of dehumanization of um, kind of racialized populations of you know like different identities, the subjugation and exploitation of entire countries and regions, especially in the global south. Right, we start to see again, like just kind of like what what lies behind the facade of these meta narratives of progress and the nation and, you know, like uh, the church and all that shit. And I I, I bring that up because um, you know, again, this is this is it's a it's a viable uh, or it's an understandable complaint that people like Jordan Peterson and especially I think Jordan Peterson is a is a you know kind of cynical shithead but I think the people that he's speaking to have a very legitimate gripe when they say that like well I don't want to live in a world where there are no meta narratives I don't want to live in a world where there is no kind of higher truth um, that I can feel like I'm striving towards that can give meaning to not only my life but the the society that that I live in and what they're trying to do is kind of sweep away all the the stuff that we've been talking about you know today and in in postmodernism you know uh, writ large they're trying to sweep all that away and try to say no we need to go back to thinking about like the nature of man right and the the kind of natural natural hierarchies that exist you know in human society we need to live by those because these are these eternal truths and you know, while I think that's bullshit, I do think that it is speaking to a very real and and kind of historically inevitable need. We will never get out of uh, we will never like I think move beyond um, the, the the stage of humanity at which humans need something to live for, right? And and I think that that is kind of like we were talking about with the individual and there and people always having some sense that like well I'm still something right I'm still a human being I'm still a, a self that that has something to offer and I don't want to believe that I'm just kind of this uh you know uh, like dream board you know like with with like imprints of society and history kind of pasted onto me and and I have no real agency right in that same way people don't want to live in a society in which like um all meta narratives are shown to kind of be uh you know useless or wrong or horrifying in their in their practical application you know we will always kind of need stuff to to build and live around and i think that um you know that's that's Again, it's all it, it's a very real kind of um, need that that people like Jordan Peterson are speaking to, but they are doing it in a very destructive and reductive and, and very kind of politically biased way. And I think that, um, you know, it's incumbent upon us to, you know, think through, you know, the, the, the stuff that's laid out here in Zerzan's piece, um, but to also kind of take that stuff seriously, the, the again, that, that kind of. Not necessarily the concept of the self, but the, you know, the 
human desire for selfness, right? Not necessarily the truth of meta narratives, but you know, the 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 truth of our kind of individual and collective desire for meaning. Right. If we take that shit kind of seriously, then I think we will be able to kind of find more political weapons and more kind of political tools in this type of thinking that, as Zerzin lays out, perhaps weren't kind of um, available to, you know, the thinkers like Derrida and Foucault, um, or at least they weren't things that those thinkers were willing to kind of take very seriously. My, my question is this. It's like, what... What is sort of better? Is it like, so we have, uh, just thinking in terms of my own experience, so all the kind of bullshit meta narratives of, uh, you know, like the American dream and progress and freedom and all of that kind of stuff that, manif- you know, becomes obviously manifestly false, like is, is an acceptance of the shifting of meaning and there not being a stability at the heart of, of language or any of that, like, is that understanding better or preferable? I, I sort of, you know, find myself thinking, you know, I'd rather be honest about the situation that we're in than live under a false story. And so, like, I understand the critiques of subjectivity or not subjectivity, but relativity or relativistic thinking, but... How do you how do you escape that? I mean, if you even look at words, I mean, you can see them. You can see meaning shift over time, even within your own lifetime, in terms of the way that words shift. Right? Like, you know, obviously something like cool or you know sick and like all that. You know what I mean? So yeah, we're that stuff is always in a constant flux. So is a a culture or society or a way of organizing ourselves that is less less rigid and determinate in recognizing there is a sort of fundamental aspect of our subjectivity that is just going there's going to remain like we sort of have to decide at some point to to do something right and once you're making that decision then that opens up the opportunity to to make a mistake and how do you figure out like how do you base anything on like, how do you create something new without reinforcing the same, you know, hierarchies or what have you, or sneaking in the same kind of bullshit as before? And I think that having that thought and that at the back of our minds when we're trying to develop new systems or new understandings or new relations, what have you, is an important thing to to draw from and understand that there are going to be limits and being super rigid about this sort of thing is I don't think the the way to go either. And I don't know how you ba- balance that or I don't even know if that's possible, right? Yeah, no, I think um we'll have to we'll have to uh kind of save that for for part 2 where we where we start to ask like okay, then you know, where do we go? <laughs> where do we go from here? Um cuz I cuz I think I think that that um it's a it's it's the question to ask, and I think that um, yeah that that um, we could have a a whole uh, great conversation kind of about how we would try to try to answer that because I think you're right yeah you don't that it, it, again people like Jordan Peterson are taking the easy way out where they're trying to say okay um, you know just just 
all of that's bullshit, you know, like, and just kind of live by, live by these lies, right? Live by these lies. Um, trust me, you know, like this is the natural order of things. Uh, there you go. Right. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you kind of, um, uh, try to push for kind of a, a way of living, um, and a way of organizing society that, that isn't kind of just, uh, you know, based on the old tired model of lying to people and, um, kind of using power and coercion to kind of force them into, to that sort of existence, right? Like, how do you, um, kind of move forward after knowing these things that we have been talking about after kind of confronting, uh, kind of the, 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 Confronting the the horrors of um, kind of human rationality, confronting kind of the the vacuousness of our previous meta narratives. How do you move forward from that? And how do you move forward from kind of recognizing, yeah, the 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 artifice of the self and the artifice of what we're taught to kind of believe, you know, uh, our, our individual selves are and the purpose of human life is how do you move on from from that in a way that still dignifies people and that still dignifies again like what is valuable and and cherishable and beautiful in in our world right how do you do that in a way that stills that still allows people to pursue you know what makes them you know kind and brave and healthy and happy and in a way that you know like doesn't rely on the vast um you know death and exploitation of of whole populations and the the murdering of the planet right these are the questions of our of our age right these are the questions that unless we figure them out uh we're you know kind of <laughs> the inevitability of human destruction is more or less going to you know um give the answer for us um and so I would say maybe why don't we like kind of leave it leave it dangling on that cliffhanger uh, and and circle back in part yeah, two. Yeah, <laughs> that, that sounds great. Um, before before I let you go, go ahead and if you want to throw out any uh, social media stuff, links, pitch, whatever you want, and anything you want to plug before I let you get on your way. Hell yeah! Well, um, and thanks for having me, man. This oh, is a lot absolutely. of fun. I um uh i i i think it was like the first uh podcast that i've been on where it's been a primarily kind of uh you know theoretical discussion and it was it was fun uh i miss miss having these kinds of conversations oh i love i um, love this stuff this is my like this is my so, favorite thing uh, to do oh sorry say that again oh i was just saying this is kind of my favorite thing to do i and especially these concepts just uh nothing excites me more i think intellectually at oh, least oh yeah well um yeah, if uh, if folks want to um, check out uh, my show, Working People, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Working Pod. Um, we are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, kind of all those all those places wherever you listen to your uh, to your podcast content, uh, Google Podcasts, what have you. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I said, we, we have conversations with workers, um, and about their lives and their jobs. We, we have conversations with organizers and, um, artists and, and thinkers, you know, talking about class and work and, and all that labor history, labor politics, all that good stuff. Um, so check us out on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. Uh, you can follow me. I think I'm like, what is, what is my handle? Maximilian. <laughs> underscore alv i think um but i'm around you can find me um check out the show let us know what you think uh yeah 
Awesome. Thanks again for uh, agreeing to uh, do the show with me, Max. And I'm going to just do my quick little social media readout before I cut us off for the day. But uh, let's see. I have, uh, do feel free to support us on Patreon at uh, patreon forward slash podcast CO Cooper Cherry. Follow the podcast Twitter feed at podcast CO Cooper. And check us out on Instagram at podcast underscore CO underscore Cooper underscore Cherry. But uh, this is going to be podcast care of Cooper Cherry signing off for the week.